This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to New Books and Celebration Studies, a special series from the New Books Network. I'm Isabel Machado and I'll be your host for this episode. And today I am just, just so happy, excited to talk to meu amigo, Dr. Miguel Valerio, about Sovereign Joy, Afro-Mexican Kings and Queens, 1539 to 1640, that was published by Cambridge University Press in 2022. Sovereign Joy explores the performance of festive black kings and queens among Afro-Mexicans between 1539 and 1640. It illustrates how the first African and Afro-Creole people in colonial Mexico transformed their ancestral culture into a shared identity among Afro-Mexicans with particular focus on how public festival participation express their culture and subjectivities, as well as redefine their colonial condition and social standing. As the book beautifully shows, through performance, Afro-Mexicans affirm their being, the sovereignty of joy and the joy of sovereignty. Dr. Miguel Valerio is assistant professor of Spanish at Washington University in St. Louis. He's a scholar of the African diaspora in the Iberian world and teaches courses in Afro-colonial culture and contemporary Afro-Latin American literature and culture. His research has focused on Black Catholic brotherhoods or confraternities and Afro-Creole festive practices in colonial Latin America, especially Mexico and Brazil. His work has been published in several academic journals, and he's also the co-editor of Indigenous and Black Confraternities in Colonial Latin America, Negotiating Status Through Religious Practices. Miguel, welcome to the New Books Network. Thank you, Isabel. It's a pleasure to be here with you, a dear friend. Now, I have so many questions about your book uh, that I think we'll have to continue this at some other time, hopefully over some good food and drinks. Yes. (laughs) In Salvador. Yes, hopefully Salvador or any other uh, sunny part of the world. Yes. 
But uh, let's begin, as I usually do with these interviews, I'll start by asking you to share with us your book's origin story. Uh, it was um, that's straight forward. I was I was at a conference this weekend, and I was asking people this, some their origin story. And this book has a you know, straightforward origin story. I was taking a class. Uh, the person who would end up being my dissertation advisor, Lisa Void, was writing her own book on festivals in colonials in South American colonial mining towns. And she developed a course on colonial cities and festivals. And we were reading uh, Penal Dia del Castillo description of that festival in Mexico City that I analyzed in chapter one. And I was reading the text and I came across the reference to, to the black kings and queens uh, in that festival. And um, it just uh, something, it just piqued my curiosity. I had never seen anything like that in all my years of studies. And um, so I went to class uh, with questions and I then began to write a paper doing uh, research for the paper. Uh, the paper was very well received. They won a prize, and uh, I, then then I I I began looking for more examples of this in Mexico, uh, where I discovered that it had not been studied. So it has been studied, as you very well know, uh, in Brazil. This is a very well store, very well studied uh, tradition, and um, Peru, uh, Buenos Aires. Uh, Panama to a lesser extent, in even Cuba, but no one had uh, has studied it in Mexico, and I found all these examples um, in Mexico. Uh, that, as you noted um, in some comments, it puts Mexico at the center of the formation of, of the Black Atlantic very early on, because these are the first example that we have of this tradition in the Americas, and they are pairing in Mexico, a place that is not normally thought as an important site of the development of Afro-Latin American uh, history and culture. Yes. So tell me, how did you decide and why did you decide to investigate this particular time frame? So that also was um, kind of given to me. The first example that I found was 1539, uh, which is the, the example study in chapter one. And then the last example that I found was 1640. So that um, when, I was, uh, when I was a kid, I had this book that I have since lost and have not been able to, to, to find, which was called 101 Poems. And the idea is that if 100 is a perfect number, 101 is more than a perfect number. In, in any event, um, besides that personal connection, uh, it seems to have been given to me to have that 101 uh, become something permanent uh, for me in the way that, that, that these festivals were given to me. So that 1640 was the last example that I found of a text describing Afro-Mexican uh, festive practices although I look hard and wide for other examples. And in the conclusion, I, I deal a little bit with, um, with one of the other, one of the only other texts that has made a very minor mention to Mexicans engaging in, in, in festive traditions, but 
it it's not nothing compared to the those four examples that I found in those 101 years. But it's also significant that it ends in 6040 uh, because that's the end of the Iberian Union, and that's also the end of the importation of Central Africans to Mexico. So that be, between 1580 and 1640 is the time where the largest number of, of people of African descent are brought to Mexico and uh, a tradition that is linked to Central Africa. And it's also, um, is, uh, and the, most of them are coming from Central Africa that are being brought um, uh, to Mexico at that time. And then that ends in 1640 as well. So it's also uh, historically significant that it ends there. Yes, and I will ask you both about uh, these Afro-Mexicans in that period and about, you know, this question of why uh, the story ends here in a minute. But I wanted to, let's open uh, the book, right? Let's start by the gorgeous cover and by this title. I think I mentioned to you that your book had me at the title. So... Uh, I want us to unpack this a bit because this is not only, you know, a, a great and important contribution that your book is making, but it, you are also dialoguing with this exciting uh, new body of scholarship on decolonial joy that you reference in, in your book. So first, how do you define sovereignty? So uh, in the in the book, I have... Uh two definitions identify two types of sovereignty. One is the communal sovereignty that uh, the people staging these um, these performances, they belong to confraternities, to brotherhoods. And as confraternities and brotherhoods, they have this communal sovereignty in the sense that for black communities, this was the only safety net. And uh, they had autonomy in setting their charitable as well as their cultural priorities, um, that although blacks were prosecuted in Mexico for this tradition, they insisted on performance, uh, performing with this tradition. And so there you have a, a, a communal sovereignty. And then what I, what I call discursive sovereignty, which is the sovereignty that is, uh, that is staged in the performance itself, right? It is a symbolic sovereignty it has huge political implications, especially in the context of Mexico, where, which is the only place where blacks were um, killed by the state for, for their festive traditions. And uh, so, so staging these performances in this world uh, is so powerful. And there is also a discursive sovereignty by appearing uh, with, you know, with royalty, with sovereignty uh, that expresses... Um, this this communal sovereignty and this uh, discursive sovereignty uh, about um, the way I define it is uh, the stories that we allow to tell ourselves about ourselves, right? That we tell ourselves and others about uh, what we are. And here, you know, they tell a very powerful story about not being uh, helpless uh, uh, individuals, but rather being a powerful collective that has sovereignty in their community and also can uh, stage this, this powerful expression of black power, black joy also. 
Yes, then let's let's talk joy. Um, tell me about joyful defiance. Uh, I think this I, again. I've mentioned this to you before, but this is a concept that resonated with me even before I had a name for it or a clear definition. Uh, and I, as I told you, I wish I had your book when I was writing mine, because I'm particularly interested in this idea that, as you write here. To study joy is not to forget pain. All right. So that in mean, the black experience uh, in the last 500 years, uh, of course, the, the larger story or the, the story that is at the forefront uh, in most of the time is a story of, of slavery and all its violence. Um, but And so we don't forget that, that that's part of the story. But there is also not to see the whole story as black people saw it themselves, right? So that I began the book with a preface about the summer of George Floyd and people marching and dancing in the street. Uh, you know, they were claiming Black Lives Matters in a joyful way, right? So that that um, that these expressions of joy are they, they you know, are an expression that Black Lives Matters is a joyful defiance, right? A world that seeks to impose a sort of social death. We joyfully defy that, uh, not to have joy, just being joyful. It's, it's, you know, it's a defiance of that uh, cosmology, of that cosmogony, of that world of the way of being, the way of the world of working uh, that is defined just uh, by being joyful. And um, we see that throughout the history of the Black experience. And of course, uh, we see it here in Mexico, especially when these Afro-Mexicans are performing after uh, or in the middle of, of political turmoils as in 1612 when uh, when the Afro-Mexicans who elected kings and queens uh, were first exiled or sold out and then eventually some were uh, executed by the state. Yes, and I think the, the framework that you establish here uh, will be, you know, used and, and very useful to people who are looking at very different uh, topics. Uh, as you know, I'm studying a very different time and place, and these, these ideas really resonated with me. But let's talk about sources now. What kinds of sources allow you to tell these stories how do you find them? You already sort of mentioned the the, the material that you found when you were uh, as a student. Um, and tell me about this diasporic approach that you employ in the book that I found really interesting. Yeah, so the sources, um, uh, I found uh, three three festival accounts that are straight out festival accounts. Um, chapter four is the festival accounts that is more independent right the other the other festival accounts that describe in one sentence or three or four paragraphs uh, black performance whereas chapter four is the only festival accounts uh, and one of the few colonial texts that is dedicated in its entirety uh, to a black topic um, but then I also found um, archival sources that dealt uh, especially with the um, with accusing uh, or conflating, but a pur- purposeful and mischaracterization and conflating of festive black kings and queens uh, with rebellion, with revolt, with marunage, uh, and these um, and these sources. And um, so, especially, especially the archival sources had been studied before under two trends: 
uh, a trend in Latin America takes it at face value. Uh, the trend in the U.S. Uh, criti- you know, is critical, reads them critically. But no one had looked at those archival sources and said, what if what is going on here is part of this larger festive traditions because they didn't have the straight-out festive accounts that to counter those, uh, those archival sources with. Uh, but then, so that even so, the sources that I found for Mexico uh, were seven sources. They were, um, in some instances, very short. I mean, Dia del Castillo is one sentence. Uh, the other one is three paragraphs. The archive, the archival sources are three to four pages. So very short, very short sources. And Mexico, uh, the practice in Mexico doesn't make any sense without looking at the broader right, and its connection to the broader African diaspora. So this is when I developed this diasporic framework, uh, because uh, as I do in chapter one, comparing something that happened in that is described as Mexico City in 1539 and then in Brazil in 1762, there are so many similarities, right, that we see that we're dealing here with the same tradition. Then. Uh, when it came to the music, uh, it was also um, it was also impossible to make sense of the music that accompanied these performances without casting this wide diasporic net uh, to look at the kind of music that were part of this performance. Yes, yes, and uh, again, it helped me understand so much better other uh, festive practices that I was looking at when, when you described this approach. So, um, that was, that was incredibly helpful (laughs) for me. And you were, you were talking about this a little bit, right? Uh, how you place, uh, Mexico city as quote, uh, a central site of the birth of the black Atlantic and the cultural transformation set in motion by imperial expansion or as, a central site of the Black Atlantic. And I I was born and raised in, in Bahia, Brazil, and I lived in northern Mexico for a while where Black experiences were practically invisible for me, right? So as somebody who comes from Bahia, goes to northern Mexico. So I was surprised to see those descriptions. Can you paint for us a picture then of the lives and experiences of Afro-descendants in Mexico in this period? It's such a, a vivid, beautiful, uh, live uh, image that you painted in your book that I honestly was not expecting. So in this time, we have in Mexico City, Mexico City somewhere from 20,000 to maybe 40,000 uh, people of African descent. Um uh, there is a map in the book uh, that was done just of the residences of women, or black women in Mexico City. And if you look, there's a dot <laughs> in every house. There's a dot in every block. Uh, some of those houses were the houses where women work as domestic workers, uh, but some of those houses were houses owned by black women. Uh, one of the cases that I deal with with, uh, with Chapter 2 is an event that took place at the house uh, of a black woman, Melchiora uh, de Monterrey, and um, well, it is called her house, and um, it is likely that it was her house, but her house was seen to have also been the meeting place of the black community. And um, in one account, the the viceroy says that that's where they did um, playing cards and gam uh, and drinking. 
but also what we see in the document is um, they're not they're not gambling or drinking. They're they're eating and dancing. That's what we see in a document that is accusatory. It tells us they had a great banquet and that they dance a, a great deal, right? So we have um, we have the, uh, the three 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 can focus on three things of, of about life uh, black lives in this time in Mexico City. Uh, the labor, right? And blacks were involved um, in a lot of the labor. They were uh, coach riders. They were, you know, bricklayers. They were involving all, all the trades. Um, some were artisans. Some were artists. Silversmith, goldsmith. Uh, they were involved in all the trades. Then you have the confraternities. So that in Mexico City you have uh, ten confraternities, which is about the same number of confraternity or black confraternities you had in 18th century Salvador when Salvador was one of the largest black city in the world, right? So you have here a comparable, right? Less, way less black people, but the same number of black confraternities are, are there uh, serving uh, important um, social and cultural uh, ends. And then you have uh, the gathering uh, for the confraternal life, the election of kings and queens, the celebration of the big holidays, and the eating and drinking, so the feasting, right? which will be part of both Christmas, Easter, but also if there's a funeral, as you know, uh, in black culture, it's also accompanied uh, by feasting. So it's a vibrant, it's a very vibrant um, uh, uh, black community and life uh, that is going on in Mexico City, especially at this time. And if you go to colonial museums and you look at paintings of the squares, right, or, or, or cast the paintings or... There's there's one paint one series that is all the months and uh, about about five of the months have black people engaged in different activities uh, in Mexico City, so there were a big a large a large presence there. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Yeah, that's another thing that I, uh, I, I was... I really loved about your the book is how we engaged again the just going back uh, to the sources with not only written sources but uh, your meticulous analysis of of images and uh, the, your conversations about music and all that so. Again, I, I can't uh, tell people how much I love this book. But uh, speaking of things I love, you probably have guessed that chapter four is my favorite chapter. I've been waiting for it for a while since we talked about Queens of the South in Salvador a while ago. But can you describe to folks the performance uh, uh, that you're talking about in chapter four and why do you think it is so important? Um, I'm interested here in also for you to discuss uh, something that you mentioned here that this performance marks the maturation of African Mexicans Creole cultural consciousness. So I know I asked a lot. We can break it down if you yeah. want. <laughs> yeah, well, no, but I mean, so yeah, so this uh, this text uh, was one of the, the 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 greatest find of the dissertation project. 
I, I mean, I did find it through someone had studied it, and I, I mentioned the person who had studied, but I don't, I didn't agree, of course, uh, with, with the reading of the text because it um, it was read from from a different perspective, uh, and they only had done like two pages on this text. Uh, so I I <clears throat> I did, as you know. A long analysis of the text of the poetry of each performance uh, that is that is relevant to, to the analysis there um, going on. I just found the performances themselves and the language fascinating, and uh, even in this text, we can you can see how ephrastic uh, all the all the description of performances are. They're very. That's why I found visual culture very helpful to to do this work because the the texts themselves are very visual, but. Uh, for listeners, uh, to describe the performance is uh, 12 black women um, in Mexico City who perform for the incoming viceroy as the Queen of Shiva, of course, the Queen of the South uh, in the gospel and all the implications. Um, people may be watching the Queen of the South in Telemundo. Um, so, you know, a long, a long tradition, right? A long, a long connection. But the women choose this performance and... Um, there are African things in the performance. So at one point, they incense the viceroy with uh, with in, the incense the viceroy with incense. Uh, the more the more um, the performance that led me to make that assertion about this is you know this is this marks that Afro-Cuban Mexican culture has come of age is a performance where the women or the symbolic language of the performance is the women are roses in a desert and the viceroy is the eagle overlook, looking over the women. Uh, of course, here this is full of, of Mexican uh, symbology. You have the roses, the Virgin of Guadalupe appear among roses. Of course, the eagle, Mexica, uh, the Mexica Pass of, 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 the, Aztec, of the Aztec world. Uh, and the viceroy is the eagle. Of course, the eagle represents Spanish power but it also represents, right? So that in this moment, the women declare themselves uh, Mexican, not even Afro-Mexican, just Mexican, plain and simple. And then uh, the last uh, performance um, has the, that phrase that became the epigraph of the book, Carbón con alma viviré a la fama, right? This um, uh, coal with a soul, I will live in fame. So uh, I also read that as a consciousness of that blacks were entering the archive, the written record, the permanent record, uh, through this performance consciously that they were they wanted to enter the, the the permanent archive in this light, and it is absolutely important and symbolic that this is performed by women exclusively, uh, whereas the performance I studied in chapter two is performed by men exclusively because women uh, were the ones who had. Uh, you know, m more freedom, more leadership roles in black communities, uh, just because of the way black community, uh, black colonial society work. Whereas that you know, colonial authorities were afraid of black bodies, and therefore uh, there was more control and oversight of men and women had more freedom. And as I said, Melchor de Melchor was the it was was the owner of this house tavern, if you will, where where the black community met. Um, women own more, had more property. So even if you think of the economics of the festival, women had more capital to, to stage uh, this performance. It is also the only of the texts that I found uh, of performance that happens um, 
before the viceroy. So that we know that every, every time you had a viceroy, you had great festivities. And we know that blacks regularly participated in those, those festivities. Uh, but this is the only text that, that, um, that gives account of that. So it's, it's, um, it's an important text that encapsulate everything that had come uh, in the previous chapters. As I said, I, I'm in love with that chapter. I don't know what I'm going to teach uh, next, but I, I will find a way of assigning this. I just, you know. <laughs> but uh, one thing that you highlight a lot in that chapter, and but that's, you know, relevant to the whole book, is your insistence in reclaiming the women's agency. And you mentioned, right, you had seen other works that uh, looked at the source through a different perspective. And you are looking at these sources um, through an Afrocentric perspective. Tell me about agency. Why is it important for you to reclaim that agency? And why should we be reclaiming that agency when we analyze similar sources, wherever our research is might, might lead us? Right. So as I said that, and you mentioned you know, that texts have been read and uh, different conclusions have been, had been arrived. One of the conclusions was that the women sh don't show any power in the whole performance. But um, I mean, that is just, I don't know how you can come to that conclusion. But if you look at the performance and, um, and you see what the women are doing, right, um, you see the agency, but also uh, here and in the book, I'm thinking of agency as an avenue to... Uh, to investigate black subjectivities, right? What is being expressed to these agencies, right? What subjectivities are being expressed, right? And one of the things that I talk about in the book, as you know, is this Afro-Creole consciousness, right? This um, localized awareness and, and strategic awareness uh, of blackness uh, that the women uh, so beautifully stage and the other performances um, uh, study in the book. But also importantly to um, highlight that, you know, even if chapter three shows, you know, that perhaps men were uh, sometimes, you know, the leader of a, one performance, the women too uh, and were, the, were the leader of a performance. And it's a very important performance also because it takes place in the, in the throne room of the Vairigo's palace, right? So all the other performances take place, place in what is today the Zócalo, right? The, the main square in Mexico City up to this day. But this takes place in the throne room, so it's in the heart of power, right? Uh, so the women are speaking power to power, right? The, um, so I found that uh, very powerful and very, it attracted me a lot, uh, uh, that whole performance. So we have, you know, chapter four with this uh, amazing performance and, and then, but then in your conclusion, you ask, where did the black court go, right? You're talking here about uh, an increased silence uh, in the colonial sources about Afro-Mexican festive culture and especially the tradition of festive kings and queens after 1640. Tell us a bit about your, you know, your, uh, you have some ideas here about why the reasons for this uh, silence. And um, as again, as, as an outsider here, I was wondering why haven't these practices survived in Mexico, at least as 
visibly as they have in other parts of the diaspora. Again, uh, I'm saying this as somebody from Bahia who studied black festive kings and queens in, in the south of the United States. Uh, right. So, yeah, this is this was uh, the great mystery that I dealt with in the conclusion. And uh, I mean, the, the, the answer could be a joyous answer. The answer could be that they became so normal that no one needed to tell us anymore. Right. Well, that happens every day. And this is one of the texts that I quote in the conclusion says as much says that this is a very usual and common thing among Afro-Mexicans, right? Uh, when it's talking about their confraternities and their fiestas, so that it became so common uh, that it didn't need to be written about anymore. Why it hasn't survived, um, it has to do with how the history of Mexico would develop, uh, especially in the 19th century, uh, uh, because a black community was still large and present in Mexico City, at the end of the 18th century, but then when you get the liberal state that outlawed the church, and then it did away with confraternities, right? So that, uh, for example, confraternities have survived in Bahia, in Brazil, and are still everywhere in Brazil, and are still important um, a site of a, a, a black agency in Brazil that was taken away from from blacks in um, in Mexico, and then. Um, uh, that if you look at other places where this hasn't survived, it hasn't survived in Peru, it hasn't survived uh, in Uruguay or Argentina, uh, also uh, countries that also took on this course of, of whiteness and later mestizaje, right? I mean, especially Mexico and Peru took on the discourse of mestizaje or indigeneity, so that black culture got pushed to the side, right? So that you said you didn't think of Mexico City as a black site because when people think back black Mexico today, they think uh, Veracruz or Guerrero. Oaxaca. Right. Oaxaca or Guerrero. But, uh, because um, that's where our communities had freedom to continue being, right? Where uh, uh, in Mexico City, they had just been, um, they have just become part of the greater milieu and the black identity has been erased, or the black culture has just been erased. It's not um, it's something that is continue. There's no continue uh, discourse about blackness in Mexico City, in Buenos Aires, and Uruguay. They continue to the earliest twentieth century, but then also also got pushed to the side there. So, but that what we see in the in the after sixteen forty also is the beginning, right? Of that uh, could also be read as the beginning of that erasure of black culture from Mexican culture. So I have so many other questions to ask you, but I'll let folks read your amazing book and uh, learn a bit more about these uh, fascinating uh, performances. But before we go. Uh, would you mind sharing with us what you've been up to? What's your next project? I know a little bit about that because we, we met when you were doing some of your research, but can you share with our listeners what we can expect uh, from you? Yeah, so um, I'm working on my second book, which is looking at Black confraternities in Brazil. There are two chapters and festivals which come towards the end of the book, uh, but I think that the new the new research in terms of that book is looking at the churches they built as archive, as artistic expression, and also um, I'm going to be thinking a lot about what does it mean to have your own space. So 
that we know that brotherhoods in Mexico and elsewhere in Spanish America and the Iberian Peninsula didn't have their own churches. Um, they had altars or chapels inside convents or churches. But in Brazil, as you know, they had their own churches and along with the with the plot that comes with the church. So that they had the church in many instances, the cemetery next to the church or the graveyard next to the church and a little more space, right? And that that also is key to, to how uh, colonial culture, uh, black culture was able to survive and continue these traditions in Brazil, uh, having their own space, right? So, um, so uh, looking at spatial autonomy, spatial sovereignty, if you will, right? And the freedom to do within that space, things that you can do, um, that you have the freedom to do to develop uh, culturally, artistic, um, the artistic expression you're able to develop by having uh, that autonomy. Yes, and well, I'm already anxiously waiting for uh, that as well. And uh, uh, just a, a bit of shameless self-promotion, we are uh, collaborating on a special issue for the Journal of Festive Studies. Would you mind talking a little bit about that and so that we can invite people, maybe somebody who's listening to this who might want to contribute to it? Yes, please do. So first of all, uh, the Journal of Festive Study is uh, the first journal dedicated to Festive Study. Uh, it's a great and important new journal now going into a fourth uh, fourth issue um, uh, led now by Isabel. And um, so for the sixth issue it is that we're doing... Seventh. Seventh, seventh <laughs> issue. We're yes. going to be looking at, uh, at different, uh, different forms of uh, decolonial joy. And uh, so we have some scholar lineup, but um, we are, we are going to be looking, we're going to doing it not only scholarly, so um, creative work, videos, uh, music, all course of experimental uh, work uh, are welcome uh, to, um, to think, to help us think and to think with us, uh, the colonial joy. So if you're working on something along those lines, uh, you can contact me. We might organize a panel or two for the meeting of the American Study Association in Montreal next year and uh, the collaborators who will be in conversation leading up to the uh, to the issue itself. Yes, and we'll have a call for papers out soon. So we uh, check out uh, the Journal of Festive Studies website and social media. And we look forward to receiving uh, your work. And, and I look forward to co continuing this collaboration with you. It's always an immense pleasure to spend some time with you, my friend. And thank you so much for taking your time. I know you're a busy man. You've been traveling a lot with the book. You have all sorts of personal stuff going on, too. Uh, and so thank you so much. No, thank you so much for, for reading uh, the book so attentively, uh, for your great questions and friendship. And um, I look forward to more conversation, as you said, in sunny places with great food. <laughs> okay, and to our listeners, thank you for tuning in. I just spoke with Dr. Miguel Valerio about Sovereign Joy, Afro-Mexican Kings and Queens. 1539 to 1640 it was published by Cambridge University Press in 2022. Check it out. It's an amazing book. I'm Isabel Machado and until next time.